Once they got a little older and we had flight privileges, we followed him around on a whole three-day trip. So we met him in Boston, went whale watching, which was really amazing because we had some really good, good memories there. I think we went up to New York for a little bit, and then we flew to Puerto Rico and had a, a full day in Puerto Rico together. And what's really cool is that we're on his plane. He's flying. And he would be on the he would make the announcement. So as you're sitting there, he lights like, that's dad. That's dad's voice on the intercom. But that that was in October. That was just a few months before he died. And so that was really, really cool that we had that that trip together. Jonathan Patrick Hill passed away peacefully yet unexpectedly on December 5th, 2014 in San Diego, California. Jonathan is survived by his loving wife, Heather Marie Hill, and their three children, Sarah Grace Hill, Andrew James Hill, and Nicholas Frederick Hill, all of Raleigh, North Carolina. His parents, Bronwyn Hooper and Dorrance Hill of Durham, his brother, Joshua Hill, and sister-in-law, Anna Billowis, and their three children, Maddie, Sophie, and Max of Westport, Connecticut, his father and mother-in-law, Frederick and Kay Larson of Canton, Ohio, and father-in-law, David Campbell of Canton, Ohio and his wingman, Ishmael Obedi, and his wife, Janelle, and their son, Latif, and a future son of Raleigh, North Carolina. Jonathan was born on September 27, 1971, on Martha's Vineyard, and completed his training as a pilot with Embry-Riddle and Airman Flight School in Norman, Oklahoma. He served for eight years as a pilot for JetBlue Airways Corporation. Although he flew around the globe and traveled to many different places, his favorite destination was his home, where he so treasured his dual role as a loving husband to Heather and beloved father to Sarah, Andrew, and Nicholas. That was Jonathan's obituary. But on this podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina, we go beyond the obituary to get a better sense of who this person was. Who was Jonathan? What were some of the stories that define him? We'll hear from the people who loved him because he was so much more than a one-page obituary. I'm your host, Jason Gillikin, and on today's show, we're joined by John's mother, Bronwyn Hooper, family friend Kimberly Rex, better known as Mimi, his wife, Heather Hill, their three children, Sarah, age 14, Andrew, 11, and Nicholas, 10, who were just 9, 7, and 6 when their dad passed away. We start with John's mom, Bronwyn. John's still pretty raw for me, so, so for me it's tough. I'm, yeah. John was born on Martha's Vineyard. We had moved up there. I'd married a black man, and it was 1970. Um, and we wanted to go someplace that we knew we'd be safe and okay. I had vacationed as a child for like 12 years on the vineyard, so I thought it would be a good place to go, and we went. And it was a good place. My husband was a builder. My mom and dad moved up there, so... It was just it was just a nice time. I went into labor with John on his due date, but it took him twenty four hours with four hours of pushing. He was posterior, and that was the story of John's life. He was a people pleaser, but everything John had to work for. We lived across from a miniature golf course. He must have been about three. But he got out the front door, and there was a long, long driveway, and then a major street that was the major street that went all the way around the island. And then on the other side of that, it was only two lanes, but on the vineyard, that was a major street. And he crossed that street to get over to the miniature golf course. 
What, he what made happened? It. He made it. That's all. <laughs> I was not pleased with him, but he made it. I mean, how did you like? If if it's a long driveway, like, did you see him go across? No. Like, how did you know he was there? Because he wasn't there. He yeah. wasn't by my feet anymore. And so you figure he just went. I just went out to oh look my for gosh. him. John had one brother, Joshua. Yes. How did they get along growing up? I think they loved each other, but they were 16 months apart and both boys and both very, very different. John had my heart and Josh had my head. He was dyslexic, so he was a non-reader until he was in third grade. Joshua, on the other hand, was in the gifted programs. They were equally bright. John just had a learning disability. He always loved doing, he liked the doing of things because that's how he learned. He learned by doing. So at 13, he was night qualified ocean scuba diving. I mean, he, he did things like that that's kind of scared the bejesus out of me. When he loved football and when he first played football because of his dyslexia, they'd give him the playbook and say, go memorize the playbook. And you might have just as well have asked him to put bamboo shoots under his nails because that was so hard for him. In order for him to know the playbook, he had to run the plays, run the plays, run the plays until he, he knew the plays. John, in my mind, was the success story um, because he had to work for everything he ever wanted. Nothing in his life ever came easily to him. But he worked. Yeah. He worked really hard. And he ended up flying jet planes. So his accomplishments, I always thought, were far greater than Josh went to Princeton and Columbia Law. But Princeton and Columbia Law was easy for Joshua. But what John had to do to become a pilot, I find rather amazing. I'm Heather Hill, John's wife. We met in January of 2002, and he was assigned to my flight. I was a flight attendant. We worked on corporate jets, and we had an assigned crew, captain, uh, co-pilot, and a flight attendant, and he was assigned to our crew. And I remember meeting him in the FBO in Philadelphia, and he walked up, and I just remembered this big, giant smile on his face. Hey, I'm John. I was like, oh, what a nice smile. Nice guy. I wasn't attracted to him right away. It wasn't like like any love love at first sight. It was like, what a nice guy. He's got a big smile. And, he, and then I was impressed at his flying skills. We became really good friends because our flights, we flew with a dedicated crew. I would share stories about my current boyfriends with him, and he would give me his, his opinion. I mean, we were literally friends, and we spent you spent all your time with that person. We were on for eight days, off for seven. So for eight days, we shared breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we'd sit in the FBOs, which is like the airports for corporate airplanes. And, you know, we just spent so much time together. We got to know each other before it became romantic. So I was with him for months and months as friends. We were in Hawaii scuba diving, so we were snorkeling together, and we just kind of, I think something just kind of clicked, like, hey. So we started then flirting with each other. We'll say that. We started flirting, and then um, the flirting moved on to 
to the next level. And um, I think we decided that we wanted to be a couple when we had a trip to Scotland together. And we were in this beautiful hotel called the Balmoral. And right beside that hotel was a really nice park. All the parks over in England are very well maintained and beautiful and flowers. And there was all these park benches and, and they all had dedications on them. To my beautiful wife of 50 years, this bench is dedicated to you. I shared our first kiss here. So we walked by all those um, park benches and he held my hand and we read all these inscriptions. And I think for me, that's when I knew that, you know, hey, this is this is something else. There was a golf resort in upstate Michigan that was really a cool place that we hung out a lot together. And I think that's when we first were interested in each other at this resort in Michigan. And then of all places, Peoria was a, where we had our first kiss. And then there was a really cool place in Illinois. I have the pad of paper at home because I always wanted to go back. They had this beautiful hotel with this claw-shaped bathtub and fire and this really tall bed. And it was just a really romantic place along a river. And we hung out a lot there. You wouldn't think anywhere in this middle of Illinois would be anything romantic, but um, that was pretty cool. And Telluride, Colorado was a really neat place that we hung out too. We've been to so, I mean, we've been everywhere. We've been to so many places, but the the places didn't seem to matter. The actions did. That's what stands out for me. My name is Kimberly Rex, and the kids call me Mimi. Well, everybody calls me Mimi. I've known Heather since the fourth grade. Heather talked, you know, she's like, you know, you know, I'm dating this guy, and, and, and I really like him. And, and I'm like, well, that's great. You know, what does he do? And she, She's like, he's a pilot. And I'm like, you are so cliche, you know, because <laughs> she was a flight attendant. Heather brought him to Canton uh, and introduced him to the family. Uh, and I happened to be there, and I just thought, you know, wow, this guy, hes he was just all over talking to everybody. It was like he was already part of the family. And then he invited me down to visit him in Florida. I lived in Ohio. He lived in Florida. He invited me down to visit him. And his brother just happened to be there, so I was getting, you know, the approval from the friend and the brother before he decided to uh, to bring me on full-time, as you say. <laughs> we had been looking at rings, and we knew we were going to be together, so it wasn't like shocked that he asked me to marry him. But we planned a trip down to Key West, and we drove down because we were living in St. Pete at the time. And... I didn't want him to know that I knew, but I think I knew because he actually asked me for my dad's phone number. He <laughs> called and asked my dad for permission to marry me. And so we're walking out on the southernmost tip of Key West and it's sunset and we're out on these docks. And he did. He actually got down on one knee. It was real quick, the one knee part, because he looked. He kept looking around. I could tell he was nervous. He kept looking around to see if anybody was around. And then he got down on one knee and just said, will you marry me? Man, I was impressed. He picked a really beautiful ring. So then we went out, you know, to some different clubs and I'm flashing the ring and we had a fun time and had some drinks and that was really fun. I think that is the night or slightly after that was when Sarah was conceived. John was very intuitive. He was the smartest person I knew. And because of his dyslexia, I think he made up for it in so many other ways. He was, I think we stated at the funeral that he was like a walking Google. He was the smartest person I knew. And I was standing in the in our condo, and I may not have been dressed, and he reached over and he touched my belly, and he's like, that feels different. You're pregnant. And I said, okay, yeah, rolling my eyes. What do you mean? I'm like, we weren't not trying, but we weren't trying trying. We were just like, let's just see what happens. And then we went out that night and got a test, and he was right. 
It was, I was pregnant. I, I can remember the emotions. I'm not sure I can verbalize it. Scared, excited. And it brought us instantly closer together. Like, wow, we're going to do this. This is it. Let's go. I found out I was pregnant in April or May. And then I stopped flying because I was 34 when I got pregnant. And I didn't want to fly 14 hours a day and be dehydrated and not, you know, be able to eat correctly. So I worked the desk job at the company. So I would fly up and back, back and forth until Sarah was born. But we got married in August when I was five months pregnant. We wanted to do something and go somewhere to make it special, but we didn't invite anybody. Um, it was just us and our friends and his parents and his brother and his brother's girlfriend and the baby actually showed up because they were in LA. But we, we planned on just doing this on our own and we wanted to go somewhere that was easy to get to and from. We didn't do like the cheesy chapel. We actually had it in a beautiful park in Vegas. And what's really neat is we got married August 17th because that's the day my grandparents were married. So I thought I want to choose a day that's special to me. So it was August 17th, 2004. And we were there over a week. And two days before we got married, John was laying on the bed with his head on my stomach. And it's the first time Sarah kicked him. So that I always remembered it was the 15th of August that she kicked him. And he was... His head was on my belly, and I never forget his face when he looked up at me when he felt it for the first time. He looked, was that it? Was that it? Yep, that was it. So she, like, kicked him right before we got married. It was really nice. Before I got pregnant, we we would work together, and then we were also home together. So we were together 24-7, and right. we, we never, we did well together. We did much better together than we did apart. You know, some people say, oh, thank God he's going away because... You know, he's getting on my nerves. It was never like that with us. We we had friends. We had jet skis. Our friends had a boat. Our friend John Hodges would take us out on his boat, and we'd go out partying, and we'd go out dancing. Well, he would never dance, but I would dance. We, we just lived the life of a single couple that wasn't married. And then after I got pregnant, we were still working the same schedule, but I was working a desk job. But we, we spent our day with a lot of, you know, planning and shopping for the baby. We were both really excited about it once we got used to it and took, you know, childbirth classes and we were um, really wanted to go natural with everything. And he was very nervous about having a home birth. So we, you know, found, went through different doctors and found a, a place that we liked. And he, we were both very prepared for the birth. And it was something, you know, we were, I was 34 when I was pregnant, so we had planned on it together a lot. He loved me pregnant. As we're riding in the car, you know, you put your arm on the armrest. No, my belly was the armrest. He knew more about my body. He knew more about what was going on than I did. And he was so upset that he couldn't feel what I was feeling. He said, I'd take away your pain. During labor, he was amazing. He ran me a bath or he ran me a shower. He rubbed my back. He was the best birth coach. I couldn't have done it without him. Or we would lay in bed and I'd have to get really close to him so that his body could feel what my body was feeling, you yeah. know, the movement and the rolling. Because once, you know, you're pretty pregnant, you can feel the the kicking and the rolling around of the baby. And he mm -hmm. was really, really upset that he couldn't feel that. And, and he was right there during delivery. He He actually, the doctor put his hands on on her and he pulled her out and handed her to me. So he was hands-on down there and it it was 50-50, 50 50 for sure the whole way. He changed her first diaper. For all three of the kids, it was a month before I ever changed a diaper. He took care of everything. The nurses, they'd come in and look at me and say, how many wet diapers and how many meconium diapers are there? And I'd, I'd just shug my shoulders and he would step in and say, uh, she had three wet ones today and, and there was one, one BM. And so he was 
hands-on as as much as as anybody would be the best. And we, we struggled with Sarah with nursing in the beginning. And that was a real struggle for us because I really wanted to do it. And I tried really hard and she wasn't latching and he couldn't, he felt helpless because he couldn't do anything. Of course he couldn't do much, but what he would do is because I'm the one getting up at night and nursing, we would do our morning nursing, her morning meal, and then he would take her and go off to the coffee shop every morning. Cause I knew once she was out of the house, cause mommy Mommy mind is you can still hear. You know when the kids are in the house because you you can sense it. He would take her out of the house, go to the coffee shop, show her off and dress her up real cute. And then when it was time for her to eat again, he would bring her back. He'd lay her beside me in bed. I would nurse her again. And then he would go back out, you know, in the kitchen and clean and do something. So he was very proud of knowing to do that so that I could actually get some rest because he felt so bad that he couldn't do much in the middle of the night. There couldn't have been anything better that he did as a dad in that aspect. After Andrew was born, I had a C-section. I couldn't move around very well. And I think he was home six weeks. I, I, I didn't change diaper for six weeks. When Heather gave birth to Andrew, he flew me down to Florida because he needed to go back to work. Andrew just being wee little and he just felt like somebody needed to be there with Heather because I think it was a, a difficult birth. John, John being concerned and knowing that he had to go back to work called me and said, can you come down? And I said, yeah. He was such a good husband. He was always looking out, looking out for Heather, looking out for the kids. After the C-section, you know, you have your scar. He actually, we bought like cheap underwear for whether this goes in or not. I don't care. That's a memory. He actually, he cut the underwear down under my incision and would put the protection inside of there so that I could easily change. Like he thought ahead to just do everything for me there and would spritz and like take care of me like I think he had he not been a pilot I think he showed interest in going into nursing so he was very into taking care physically and and mentally he told me I was pregnant with Sarah just by touching my belly number two Andrew we found out just by taking a test and I called him and then finding out about Nicholas was funny because he was uh, the night before the vasectomy conception and uh, I was I was feeling kind of off and he said, "You're, what if you're, you could be pregnant?" And I'm like, "Well, I hope not, because you know you've you had surgery." And we came home and took a test. I took the test, and instantly with my other two, the sign came up right away, really dark. And they showed up really quick. Well, this didn't show up really quick, so I have to say I was a little disappointed because you know you get it in your mind, this could be, this could be. So I went and laid down, and then Sarah got up, went and grabbed the pregnancy test out of the bathroom, and thought it was a toothbrush. So John like jumped out of the bed and grabbed it and said, no, no, no. And when he looked at it, he saw that it was positive. So he knew before I did. Then he said to me, "Are you? were you upset that it was negative? And I said, well, no. I said, we have a boy and a girl. We have two healthy children. What else can anybody ask for? I'm not going to regret it. He didn't tell me right away. This is like an hour later. And he's like, well, I just, I just want you to know it was positive. And I did with those, shut up. No, it wasn't. Show me, show me. No, Heather, it was, it was positive. Don't believe you. Go get it. Go get me three more. I need to take three more. Because we were really excited, you know, for the fact that, it, that we got one more right before surgery. Once they got a little older and we had flight privileges, we followed him around on a whole three-day trip. And we were standby. So it just worked out that every flight we were on, there was open seats. So we met him in Boston, went whale watching, which was really amazing because we 
we had some really good good memories there. What we were watching, and then we went up to, I think we went up to New York for a little bit, and then we flew to Puerto Rico, and had a, a full day in Puerto Rico together. And what's really cool is that we're on his plane; he's flying, and he would be on the he would make the announcement. So as you're sitting there, it's like that's Dad, that's Dad's voice on the intercom. And then as you're exiting the plane, the pilots come out, and he would ask him, well, how was my landing? And the kids were like, yeah, well, it was all right. And he was he, he made a really good landing, so much so that Nicholas didn't even wake up. <laughs> Nicholas was asleep on the last flight. I think we had to do Orlando to Puerto Rico, and he didn't even lift his head up. That's how good the landing was. And we joked around that his family's tougher on him than anybody else on his landings. Yeah, we give it an eight when it was just really smooth. That was in October. That was just a few months before he died. And so that was really, really cool that we had that that trip together and it was it was really fun in Puerto Rico we got to swim and play games and go out to eat and it was full 24 hours which you know it's not a vacation but it is time that we got to see him on the airplane Sarah had a migraine that day a really bad she would get headaches a lot and so I went out onto the beach and and to the pool with the kids and he actually stayed in the hotel room with her and just held her in his arms while she had her headache for us to follow him around and be at the gate. And we got to go through the TSA, like the crew area when you go through security. We still got checked, but we got to go through the special line. And I could see him walking in his uniform, pulling his bag and the little ones following behind him. It was It's a really good memory of, of our trip with him. I'm so glad we had that. And their kids remember that trip too. Here's Sarah, then Andrew. We went to Puerto Rico and Boston. Well, we went whale watching in Boston. I really like Boston. That was fun. I saw whales, and I've never seen a whale, so that was cool. He went on trips with us. We went to Boston. Um, we went to an aquarium. The moments that he had at home were teaching moments with the kids. We watched the inauguration of Obama together. They actually had a snow day that day. So we're like, no, you need to watch this. This is an important part of your life. He would teach them. He was so smart about everything. He would teach them... You know, we'd watch the NASA landing and he would explain NASA to them or he would explain airplanes to them or we would quiz each other in the car. What's the fastest land animal? What's the largest land animal? What's the largest animal that flies? Like he would he would quiz them on all those things. And so the times that they were together, if we weren't at the park, then he was teaching them. I know Sarah remembers that. Um, we loved her. He loved his Jeeps. So we would put the top down and go go riding around in the Jeep a lot. That was fun times at, at home. But we had, you know, we were a typical family. There was three kids. He was gone all the time. I was being a single mom when he was gone. He made up for it when he would get home because he would do all the laundry for me and clean. But we were, you know, a busy family. And so there wasn't a lot of, a lot of vacations or a lot of things because we were just struggling to, to be a family of five. It's almost feels like when they're little, you're just in survival mode. You're just trying to get through the day. Okay, it's bedtime. It's bath time. Who's cooking tonight? And then now's the time where we would have been able to make more memories. But the kids do have memories of their dad. Like when I asked Andrew what his favorite thing to do with his dad was. Drive around in his Jeep. I don't know, places. And here's Nicholas, who was so young when his dad died that he doesn't have a whole lot of memories of him. I remember this one time we went to a restaurant, I think it was Wild Rings, and he made me try chicken nuggets. And um, when he looked away, I threw them under the table. And then at the end, um, I said that I ate them all. Sarah has more memories since she was older, including visiting the park at the airport that her dad flew out of. There's a sitting deck 
where you can like watch the planes come in from the runway. And I remember being like really excited when like we could see his plane go by, you know, like on the runway or like off to the side because there's two runways. But I just remember being really excited like going up there to sit in the chairs and watch it. Well, I had a bike and it had training wheels on it and it was in the garage and then he ran over it. So I had to get a new one and that's oh, no. when I got my two wheel bike. My mom pushed me in the street until I um <laughs> rode the bike. For my 10th birthday, he bought me Tiffany earrings and they're like bows and they're really pretty, but he never gave them to me because like he passed away. No, I'm just scared I'll lose them. And Heather told me that whenever John would come home from a trip, he would tuck each of them into bed and whisper something in their ears, but Heather has never found out from them what that was. He would say something, to, I don't know if it was all of us, but it was like something he would say every night that he was home and like he would whisper it. I think it was like a personalized thing. Like, I don't think we all had the same one. I think it was different. That man would not dance. And I joked around about him when we got married. When he came, when I came down the aisle, I almost said to him, if you don't dance right now, I'm not going to marry you. But he would never dance. But he did dance in the car to YMCA. You put YMCA on, he would act like a four-year-old. But the only thing that he would do is, you know, we have one of those washing machines that plays the long tone. Do, 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 do. And he, he would, his little feet would dance on that. Or we have one video of him doing like an Irish dance with Cotton Eye Joe. I don't know why Cotton Eye Joe came on. Whenever we hear that song, that's that's him doing his little, and it, he just moved his feet, so I don't think that counts as dancing. He was goofy and fun and laugh, but he was was a man. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he wouldn't get silly, goofy, embarrassing, except for YMCA in the car one time. And then I, I looked at him like, you look like a fool, and he never did it again. He got He got really embarrassed. He loves seafood, and I'm a weird eater, and I never ate, I don't eat meat, I don't eat seafood. He said, I just wish one day I could sit down and have a steak with my family. So I always think about that now because the kids, they're, you know, when they're little, it's macaroni and cheese and grilled cheese and cereal. But now their their appetites are expanding, and Sarah likes steak, and Sarah they like grilled chicken, and Sarah tried sushi and shrimp, and I think he would have really loved that. Every time I see him eating that stuff, I'm like, Dad really would have liked to have shared this with you because... You know, it's hard to have a really nice meal with macaroni and cheese. But he loved Outback. Outback Steakhouse was his favorite place to go. We used to go there in Florida. Our very first venture out after Sarah was born was at Outback. And she was, you know, a couple weeks old and she started crying. I said, well, why don't I just nurse her right here, you know, at the table? Like, no, no, we're not going to do that. He realized then our life has changed. Like, we can't just go out to Outback whenever we want because she was crying. But I had not been to Outback since he died until a couple months ago, I went with my neighbor, Debbie. And when we were there, there was a table beside us that had a birthday party. They were singing happy birthday, and when she know, the guy's name was John. So I'm, I'm sitting in my the two-person booth. They're having a birthday party over there. And it's a big deal because we went to Outback a lot. He liked to shrimp on the Barbie, and the it would change what he would eat. But there's a birthday party, and they're like, happy birthday, dear John. I'm like, no, I can't do this. I remind them of our memories of, yeah, do you remember, oh, Puerto Rico, like Puerto Rico's on the news. Do you remember we went to Puerto Rico? Or when we hear Cotton Eye Joe, do you remember dad's funny dance to that? Or his pictures are everywhere, and we'll talk about him playing football. And just the other day, and I've never done this, just the other day they were arguing, because Sarah and Andrew are constantly at each other. And 
Sarah didn't want the boys to go to her birthday dinner. And I said, what would dad say? And I don't drop that. That's the first time I've dropped that ever. Like, dad would want us to get along and for you to love your brother and love your sister. But I think we, we move forward just trying to make him proud. And for th- I, I know that he would want them to be close. When he died, the first few days after he died, my initial thoughts were about him being worried about us. I'm like, wherever you are, I hope you're not worried. Like, I was worried about his spirit or whatever it is being worried. I know it's kind of weird. I just remembered that when you said that. But I'm like, his initial priority was us and if we're okay. So if I can move forward in the process of making it okay, then I will have honored him. He was on a trip. He died on December 5th. I wasn't told till December 6th. It was a Friday into Saturday, and the phone rang at 6 o'clock in the morning. And all I could think of, oh, it's, it's, it's Bronwyn calling. She wants to go do something with the kids because she gets up really early. And it was the house phone, not my cell phone. And I was like, I ran to the phone because I didn't want the phone to wake up the kids because they were sleeping in, and it's Saturday, and Mama wanted to sleep in. And I picked up the phone, and it was JetBlue calling. And it wasn't crazy for JetBlue to call because... If he didn't check in electronically for his flight, they would call and say, hey, are you checked in? So I picked up the phone. They're like, this is, this is so-and-so, Rich Carter from JetBlue. Um, I'm calling about Jonathan. And I'm like, he's on a trip. I think I might have said he's on a trip. Did he not check in? Why, why, why didn't he check in? Because he's already out on a trip. He's not starting a trip. So that was my initial reaction. And then the, it's, the words are a blur, but it was something like, Heather, I need to tell you that Jonathan was supposed to be on a layover. He was supposed to be on a red eye to Boston, and he didn't show up for his trip. I instantly knew, but I, I needed to hear the words. And we broke. We had to open the hotel room, and we went in, and I am so sorry to tell you that he, he had died. It's a blur what, what happened next. I, I, I don't know if I cried out or if I what I did. Apparently, I did something because the kids woke up. Whether they heard me talking or what, I think I probably broke down right then. I, I don't, it's, like I said, it's a blur and it probably is a protective measure that I don't remember. But I remember that I was in my robe and then I talked to them a little bit and he said, there's a care team from JetBlue that wants to come over right away, make sure you're okay there. And we wanted to notify you before the police did. For some reason, I knew, you know, a lot of people say, no, I didn't believe it. I needed to, see, I, I did not have any doubt. He had struggled with blood pressure in the past and, he, you know, was was stressed out. It was the holidays. He was supposed to be off, but he took an extra trip because he had gone to a funeral a couple weeks before for his aunt. So I knew he was stressed out about going. So I was surprised that my initial reaction wasn't doubt. I was like, nope, I, I, I had a feeling that someday I might get that phone call. And then I left the kids. I went next door to my neighbor's house, Debbie, knocked on her door at six o'clock in the morning, left the kids. I I don't know where they were. I think they were on the steps. And I just, I dropped to her floor in a primal cry that wasn't strong enough. Like I just, I I, I hugged her. She was in her robe and her hairdress thing or her rollers or something. And she started crying. And I remember saying to her, you have to be strong for me. You can't cry. I have to I have to cry. You can't. I remember being in my mind enough to say, you can't lose it. I, I'm losing it now. And then I told her what happened. I think I got it out, what happened. And then her husband went next door to sit with the kids. I mean, I was right next door. I would have been okay with them being alone. But she said, go over there and sit with the kids. And then I screamed and cried and and on my hands and knees on her floor. And then I said, you have to call 
John's mom. You have to call Bronwyn and tell her to come over here. And I remember her on the phone, and I remember Bronwyn saying, tell me what happened. And I, I told Debbie, I said, you can't tell her on the phone. But I, I started talking to her, and then I handed the phone. But anyway, after I pulled it together and got on the couch, then the police came to notify us. And then I went back after probably, I think I was over there an hour, I went back and told the kids. I remember walking back into the house, still in my robe, and the kids knew something was going on. They saw mom crying. They knew something was going on. They saw the police car out front. Bronwyn was with me over there at this time. I remember Nicholas sitting on my lap and I told them that daddy was not coming home and that he was on a trip and that he died and that they're not going to get to see him again. And Sarah cried. Nicholas cried a little bit because Sarah was crying. I think Sarah's the only one that understood. And that's still a, a still a blur. And then after that, everything just became a whirlwind. You know, Debbie came over and cleaned my house and grandma was there and then his brother Josh flew in and then Ish came over and then the vice president of JetBlue came over. And so it was a house full for the next four days. Then we had to get a funeral home to get him and we had to get him home. And then we had to plan the funeral. And thankfully, I had this assistance of everybody here that was able to help me get everything planned and get him here so we could see him. And I think literally I was not alone for weeks. And I didn't want to be alone. I just wanted to sleep because when I slept, this is the only time it didn't hurt. And I distracted. Then I think when you when you have kids, I mourned for them. I looked out for them. And a month after, I, we went to Chick-fil-A with Ish and the kids. And I'm I'm so sad for Ish. I'm like, Ish, you moved down here and your best friend died. And I'm thinking about, you know, his mom and the pain that she's feeling of losing a kid. So it was like I projected my grief onto everybody else's and continued and still continue to this day to distract. As I'm distracting, I'm telling myself this isn't this isn't the right way to do it. You know, I have to sit in it. I have to confront it. And I did actually confront it a year and a half later. Sarah asked me, do you think daddy's spirit is still in the hotel room? That hit me like a ton of bricks. So. I got myself together and called the hotel and asked to get a room, his room, and reserve that room so that I could go there. Not that I was looking for anything or going to see, like, you know, to visit him, but it was something that I needed to do. I needed to be in the space where his energy left. It took me days to get up the nerve to call the hotel. So I called, how do you call the hotel and say, can I have room 910? Um, because that's where my husband died and I'd like to stay in that. Like, how does that sound? Like I, I got on the phone and I said, my name is Heather Hill. My my husband died, you know, two years ago. Or it was a year and a half ago in, at your hotel. And I, I really need to come there. I need, you know, for my grief, for my closure. And she's like, can you hold on just a minute? She put on the manager who actually found him. So I guess that either the same people, I don't know how she knew to get me the manager. He got on the phone with me and he's like, hello, Mrs. Hill. I remember this day clearly. I was there when we we found your husband and let me know when you want to come and I'll make it happen. And I'm like, well, I want to come tomorrow night or the next night. And he's like, you know, I, I, I'll give you the airline. <laughs> he's like, I'll give you the airline rate for it. I have to charge you for it. I don't want to charge you. So I planned on going and I belong to a Facebook group called JetBlue Pilot Wives who have done nothing but wrap our family. JetBlue wrapped us all in support. They knew I was going. They all looked up all the pilots for all of my trips. So when I got to RDU, the pilot found me and made sure that I got on. The gate agents knew John. And so there wasn't actually room for me to get on, but they called corporate. They called as far as you could go 
to get me on that flight because I had flight privileges and you normally have a super pass, but my super pass was gone. They got me on the flight, the whole flight from there to, I think I flew to New York or Boston first. I just sobbed the whole time, like big out sobs. And the lady beside me gave me her pack of Kleenex. You know, I remember that. I'm like, thank you, lady. And the captains, you know, got me off the plane first because I was going to miss my connection. Then I got to my connection and I wasn't going to make that. And the pilots were waiting for me when I got there. And they were like, when we get there, you're going to ride our van over to the hotel. We'll make sure that you get to the hotel. Okay. When I got to the hotel, there was pilots that were at that layover that knew I was there. And they embraced me. And, you know, I I met them down at the bar. They're like, you're Heather. You're, You're John's wife. You know, I just wanted to let you know if you need anything. I'm here. And... Because the pilot wives had told their pilots, Heather's in San Diego at, the, at this hotel at the Doubletree, so find her. I went outside. I wasn't ready to go up to the room yet. And I went outside, and I sat on the bench. And there was a girl sitting out there. And she's like, so what are you doing here? Well, I'm actually going to go stay in the hotel room where my husband died. So I told her. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I stood out there, and I told her what I was doing. And she was fascinated. She has that look on her face like you yeah. have right now. Like, yeah. oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. And so I told her all about my story. And then I'm like, so why are you here? She's like, I'm on business. So when did you know, when did you find out? And what did you do and your kids? And and then she's like, Well, I said, I got the nerve. I think I'm gonna go up now. And I said, Well, what was your name? And she's like, Angel. And I was like, Okay. All right. So I went to the bar. I had a few drinks because I, I needed to loosen up before I went up. I went up to the room and when I got off the elevator, all I could think about is this is the hallway where he was wheeled out. And I'm like standing back in this alternative universe thinking of, of looking down and seeing, you know, we see that here. We know what the stretchers look like and the covers look like and all the hubbub and the door being broke down. I got to the room and I put my key in. It didn't work. It was demagnetized for some reason. So I'm like, I got the cojones to come up here to this room. So now I've got to go all the way back oh down. So I had gosh. another drink while I was down there. And then I went back up and I'm looking at the door for signs of breaking. Like, did they break this door, you know, and I know for a fact I was in the same room because it's on all the police reports. So I walk in the room, the room is dark, there's no fireworks, there's no greeting, there's no angels, there's no light, there's no, I don't know what I was expecting was another, and I'd been in a lot of hotel rooms in my career, but I did turn the light on and the um, hotel had put flowers in the room for me with a Mm -hmm. condolence note. And I took a shower, I wrote a heart with his name on it on the mirror once the shower got foggy. Because I was a little tipsy, I went right to bed. I had I had some snacks or something. I went to bed thinking I'm going to dream about him. I didn't dream about him. All I did was text. All the pilot wives were like, are you there yet? Like they followed me on this journey. So I'm yeah. like on my phone saying, okay, I took a picture of me in front of the sign saying I'm on my way to go up. And they're like, Heather, we're with you. You know, we love you. Our hearts are with you. Like all the support that I had virtually through all these women is what gave me the strength to, to keep going. So I didn't dream about him. I woke up. Time to check out and go on the other flight. I bent over the bed, though, where I figured he would lay because he always lays on the bed sideways. And I I had a cry, and I was like, this is where you died. Like, right, like I wanted to feel something. I wanted there to be something, and there wasn't. I tried. I cried. I tried to find something. Went out to the elevator, hit the button, and I heard a, a ting. I heard something hit the ground. My necklace that had his wedding ring on came undone and hit the hit, you know, it's like marble and the elevator opened and I'm like, no, I can't go because my wedding ring fell off and I'd taken it off for the shower and I'd slept in it. So it wasn't undone. So my first thought was, oh God, he doesn't love me anymore. My ring's gone. I found it by the way. No, I didn't lose it. But my initial thought was, oh my gosh, 
the love is gone. The ring fell off and I'm in his hotel in this energy. And then some, some of my friends set me straight and said, no, he's telling you to let go. Has nothing to do with his hotel room. He is not here. It's all about this journey that I took. The woman that gave me the Kleenex, the pilots that found me and guided me and walked with me and talked with me. It's about um, the lady on the bench out front. It's about the pilots that met me at the, at the hotel room. Nothing happened in the room. When I got to the elevator, my ring fell off. And then it was about um, getting back home was a struggle. And all the pilots that knew I was there that just embraced me. So it was so much a lesson about the journey that I had as opposed to the destination. There are so many good people out there that are good to you and that are there for you, you know, along this journey. And that I've learned a lot of positivity from this. That's what I have to. I have to do that in order to get through day to day. Of course it sucks. Of course they're missing out. And of course I'm missing out on the love of my life. He loved Heather. He adored his children. He could wrap you in his big arms. Yeah. He was, a, he was just a good man. He had a great laugh. He had a great laugh. You could always hear him laughing from a mile away. I was most proud that he knew how to love. He knew how to take care of you. John would have given anybody the shirt off his back. And he was a hard worker. He's a hard worker, but he was, when John loved you, John loved you. That was it. No questions asked, no, no judgments, no, he just loved you. Well, if he's listening, let's say you had a, a little bit more time with him. What would you, what would you tell him? I would tell him the kids are okay. Heather's okay. I work at it. <laughs> and that I love him. I love him. Hey, I mean, like, <laughs> um, I probably just want to say hi because I feel like he's already watching, so he probably knows what's going on. So I don't want to like give him a full rundown because that take a long time. Lost affections, but I just say hi. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, maybe I love you. I really, and I'm not saying this to for anything, but I don't think I'm doing a good job, as good of a job as if he were here. I want to do a lot more, but I'm forgiving of myself and I know that he will be forgiving of me because while I have Mimi, I want to make him proud and I'm, I'm working full time and I'm in this funeral director here at, at Renaissance and I'm trying to do really good for my families because that purpose of helping people is what's what gets me through. And being a mom, being the person that pays the bills and, and being the head of the household. So I think he would be very forgiving of me and wouldn't say that. but. I would tell him that I'm going to try to do a better job. I think what John would just want the kids to know is how important they were to him. Oddly, the reason he's not here is because he didn't take care of himself because he wanted to take care of us. And that throws me back to my initial thought of that he's going to be worried about us. And I just want him to to know that we're we're not as good as we would have been had he been here, but I think he'd be proud. And things that I try to do are to make him proud because he was he was an amazing, amazing person. And I, I want them to remember that, and I wish they had more memories of him. Well, hopefully this podcast will keep those memories alive. Nothing can ever replace the man that his family loves so much. Jonathan Hill dyslexic, human Google, 
pilot, loving father, husband, and son, the man with the infectious laugh, the man who would take care of all the diapers, you will be missed. Here's one last story about John. I noticed that Heather had a picture of her and John on a plane with former President Bill Clinton, so I had to ask her about it. Well, when we flew privately, we um, somebody that owned a share of our airplane was hosting a speech that he was doing in Miami. So we had to uh, submit our information. We knew we were flying him because they had to do background checks. It, it's funny because we were really excited about it, and we... When he walked up the steps, he really was like a vision. Like he was really tall, has a presence and energy about him, but he was a very quiet man. But we were really happy to get that picture. We got, you know, Prince made and everything blown up. So we have, you know, his mom has one at her house and he was very, very nice. He, they wanted to watch a movie and John had so many DVDs, hundreds of DVDs. And he carried them with him because we had DVD player on the plane. And he had the movie The Ladies' Man. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen Tim Meadows I, and The I Ladies' have, yes. Man. We played that movie while Bill Clinton was on the on the plane. <laughs> and at the very end, Tim Meadows says, yes, yes, I wish you the best in your marriage. Thanks, Hillary. Say hey to Bill for me. And I'm like, oh, my God, I played this movie while he's on our airplane. Oh, my gosh. He was very, very nice, very signed an autograph for us and was nice enough to get us a picture. And that was an awesome memory we had together. You watched The Ladies' Man on a plane. With your husband and Bill Clinton. Absolutely. Sure did. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you about it. <laughs> I mean, I think you're the only person in the world that can say that. That's that's probably right. And it's true. It's very true. That's amazing. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. Heather is actually the funeral director at the Renaissance and was working there for only a month when John died. The support from the Renaissance team, from her family, from her clients, from the JetBlue team, from Mimi and her friends, that's what has helped her survive and thrive as she helps others with their grieving as well now. This episode was edited, produced, and hosted by me, Jason Gillikin, with Happy Hippo Digital. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Share or tell a friend too. Those are the best ways to get the word out there about this new show. Until next time, I'm Jason Gillikin, and you've been listening to Beyond the Obituary.